Good morning. It's great to see you. If we've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here at Westgate. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's great to see you guys. And we're crazy. We're a week away from Christmas. I can't believe it. Um, David already mentioned it, but yeah, I, we're a week away. And a week from now, we'll be right here together in this room. And uh, really looking forward to seeing all of you and loved ones and friends and family in your Christmas best. Um, I'll be wearing a blazer. It is the one time, two times out of the year I wear a blazer. So if nothing else, come back for that. It's, um, it's mesmerizing. It'll change your life. So please come back. Let's begin here. I want to show you an image. This is one small image um, depicting just a small section of a much larger thing. This is one small section of an art piece, a painting called The 613 by an American artist named Archie Rand. He created this piece in 2008. This is, um, you're only seeing one small section of it here, but the entire thing, it is one of the largest freestanding paintings ever created. It's 17 feet tall and it's 100 feet wide. And it's actually made up of 614 individual paintings on smaller panels that have been all put together into one single giant piece. It's 614 contiguous panels. There's an introductory panel, and then there are 613 panels, each one depicting one of the 613 laws that are found in the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. Now, you may not know that. Most of us know, you know, the Ten Commandments, the Moses story, the two tablets. You know, there's ten of them, right? There's ten commandments. Yes, there are ten, but there are a lot more than that, actually. Again, if you just read the Old Testament, you will discover 613 very specific laws. And what are these laws? They're basically God's instruction to his people. Listen. If you wanna belong in my family, if you wanna live a life that is in alignment with the way I have designed human life to be, for humans to flourish, then these are the 613 laws that you've got to abide by. The law was a reminder to people, like this is the way to belong in my family. 613 of them. Now this art piece, the 613, its enormity is actually, the artist is on record as saying, Archie Randa said, he made this piece as big as he did because he wanted it to be a visual reminder to people about basically the impossibility of earning and achieving our way to perfection, to actually living according to all of these laws. It's too big. The law, really, in the Old Testament, the ancient world for the Jewish people, the law was really a reminder for God's people that achieving and earning our way into God's family is just beyond reach. It's not possible. That's essentially the law. And what some of us are wondering right now is like, dude, I thought it was Christmas. You're talking about Old Testament laws. What is this? What is happening? Culture at large will tell you that Christmas is primarily about stuff. 
Culture will tell you that Christmas is really, this is just a season of stuff. Just look at your advertisements on your social media feeds, right? That creepy thing that happens when you're talking to your friend over coffee about the new Tesla Cybertruck and then your feed is just all Cybertruck stuff, right? Okay, Christmas is just, cult, according to culture, Christmas is just about stuff. It's about the $950 billion Americans will spend or have spent on Christmas gifts already this year. It's actually also about the $300 billion worth of Christmas gifts that you and I will return to the stores. <laughs> Did you know that? Like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's about a third, right? About a third of the gifts you receive. Those are going straight back to, you're like, is there a receipt with this gift? <laughs> Culture at large tells us that Christmas is about stuff. Now, cultural Christianity will tell you that Christmas is about a season. Christmas is a season, it's a moment in time. This beautiful moment with infant Jesus and Joseph and Mary and wise men and angels and shepherd in this glowing manger. But again, remember, the 613 laws in the Hebrew scriptures, they are intended to remind us that there is no way for anybody no matter how good you think you are, there is no way for anybody to actually achieve or earn our way into God's family. It's beyond reach. It is beyond possibility for humans. And Christmas really, according to the Bible, is not about stuff. It's not even about a particular season. Christmas, according to the scriptures, is about a solution to that problem. This season we celebrate, it's not mostly primarily about the stuff we get or the stuff we return or the things we exchange. It's not even really just a season, a season of light, a season of peace, the manger and baby Jesus and wise men and angels and nativity scenes. Christmas is a solution to a problem. The problem is we cannot make it on our own. Christmas is the solution. Let me show you. Galatians, this ancient writer, first century writer named Paul, he's writing to the early Christians in an ancient city called Galatia. He's writing to um, like uh, brand new Christians actually at the time. And he says this, Galatians 3 first. So the law, this is like the 613 laws, the impossibility, right? The law was our guardian until Jesus Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the law, the pressure, the impossibility of these 613 laws. And a few verses later in Galatians 4, what does Paul say? When the fullness of time had come, this is Christmas right here, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might, what, receive adoption as children. That's Christmas. It is the solution to the problem. What is the problem? Paul says that the law, right, Archie Rand, 613, this massive 17 by 100 foot, like I've gotta observe all of these perfectly to belong in God's family. The impossibility of the law, call, Paul calls it a guardian. 
Now, much like today, in the ancient world when Paul writes this, minors were required to be under legal guardians if their father specifically was deceased. But here's the thing, unlike today, guardians, children in general, but especially minors who were under the care of a guardian in the ancient world, they were subordinates. They didn't have rights. They weren't like young, new, emerging generations that we've gotta care for. They were literally just like walking, breathing things in a household. A human being in the ancient world didn't achieve full rights until they were old enough and capable enough to contribute to family and society. And so minors who had lost their father, if their father was deceased, they were placed under the care of a guardian, typically um, the oldest male in the home or in the household or family, and they were treated essentially as slaves. So this is like no easy thing Paul is talking about. In fact, if you read Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, he will make this abundantly clear. He says things like, once we were slaves to the law. It doesn't mean that the law is bad. It just means that it's impossible. Like under the law, we will never be children. We'll always just be slaves, minors with no rights. Now, when Paul says we are no longer under a guardian or under the law, this is really important. What he doesn't mean is that if you're a Christian now, you get a, a jail, a get out of jail free card like in Monopoly from Jesus, and then you're just free to live however you'd like. In fact, Jesus himself says this about the law, the impossible law. Matthew 5, he says, Jesus, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word fulfill is a single Greek word that actually means better. It's like to bring to completion, to make it whole. Jesus, in his life and his teachings, he is the embodied fulfillment of what these 613 laws were always pointing to, which is a blameless life and complete belonging in God's family. So it's not like I'm a Christian now, I have Jesus, I can just do whatever I want, and when I die, I go to heaven. That's not what's happening here. When Paul says we are no longer minors or slaves under the guardian of the law, what he is saying is we're no longer slaves or minors. We are children. More on that later. Romans chapter eight. Paul, this is the same writer, Paul, he says this in Romans eight. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the 613, the impossible law, was powerless to do. Why? Because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, we're not able. That's too many. There's no way I could live perfectly aligned to 613 laws all the time. God did by sending his own son. This is Christmas. Sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the 613, the law, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a lot here, but let me just summarize in short. The impossibility of living up to 613 laws, it's not that that's not a requirement anymore, it's that that requirement has been fulfilled in Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to the earth and lived a perfect, blameless, sinless life. Jesus did the thing that you and I could never do. This is why he says he didn't come to abolish or destroy the law. He came to what? Fulfill it. He does what we could not do. Before Jesus, adherence to the literal letter of the literal law was the way to belong in God's family. That's what was required. But Christmas means that allegiance to and trust in Jesus is the way to God. That in spite of our failures, in spite of the ways in which you and I mess up time and time and time again. I mean, let's just talk about like the 10 commandments. Never mind the 603 other laws. Let's just talk about the 10 we know. And let's just talk about one. Honor your father and mother. Have you ever failed to live up to that law? Is there anyone in this room that has not once in their life Dishonored mom and dad. Anyone? Anyone? Exactly. That's one out of, you got 612 more. You've already failed. F for everyone. Forget the 612, everyone has an F already. Jesus means, Christmas means, we don't have to strive and struggle toward perfection anymore. Christmas means that a perfect savior has done the work on our behalf, the work we could not do. Christmas means that we are no longer minors or slaves, but we are children now of God. Not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus came and he did it for us. Again, back to Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Again, this is Christmas. God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. That phrase, born of a woman, there's lots of scholarly work that's been done because it was confusing for a long time. But there is unanimous agreement now that that phrase, what Paul intends to mean, is that Jesus was fully human. Yes, he never stopped being God. He was fully God. But when he came, he came as a human like you and me. This is why C.S. Lewis famously said that the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus becomes fully human in order to fully save humans. Let me say that again. Jesus becomes totally, fully, completely human in order to be able to totally, completely, fully save humans. Hebrews chapter two describes it for us this way. 
For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, humans, you and me, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Don't get hung up on that word high priest. It's like an ancient term to describe someone who mediated between God and people. That's what Jesus does for us. He mediates on our behalf. A faithful high priest in service to God that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Again, that's the solution. Jesus solves our problem. And because he himself, Jesus himself, suffered when he was tempted, here's the key. He, Jesus, is able to help those who are being tempted. Whatever you're going through, whatever struggle, whatever pain, Jesus knows. Like he doesn't know intellectually, he has been tempted in the ways that you are tempted. He has struggled and felt pain and anguish and frustration in the ways that you struggle and feel pain and anguish and frustration. Augustine of Hippo beautifully wrote this about Christmas. He says, man's maker was made man, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, and the truth might be accused of false witnesses. The teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That's Christmas. That's how Jesus solves the problem. He becomes just like us, but also embodies what we were always meant to be, but never ever could. Christmas reminds us that Jesus understands and empathizes with our pain. So the question, is there anything painful in your life? Is anything wrong? Is the story being written in a way you never intended? Is there a tension or an anxiety or a fear, a concern, an uncertainty? Is there a circumstance or situation that just seems too big, impossible to get through? Jesus knows. He knows not just the situation, he knows how you feel. I can have a bit of a temper sometimes. Um, I grew up here in the States, so I've spent my entire life here, so I'm pretty Western, but then sometimes this like, angry Korean dad thing will come out of me. Everyone laughing is like Korean or knows a Korean. You know what I'm talking about. And they're laughing to cover up their own pain, by the way. It's very, it's very frightening. Sometimes it's like angry Korean dad thing will come out of me. And I remember one time my mom, who is, you know, my Korean mother, is over at our house and the kids are doing something and I got really frustrated and my temper flared up and I got really upset at my kids in front of my mom And then a day or two later, she and I are talking, and she says, hey, I I wanna talk to you about a couple days ago when you got really upset at the kids. And I just knew it. I was like, okay, here it comes. I'm like, you know, a middle-aged man, and my mom is about to reprimand me like I'm a little kid. And instead, my mother says, you know, when you were a kid, I had a temper too. And then my mom apologized to me. And she said, man, I'm really sorry. That's that's me in you. And she said, I get it. And I felt so seen and so safe 
and not judged. And it's not like my mom was saying, so keep going. Like, just get angry at your kids. It's awesome. I'm all for it. I'm cheering you on, those lame little kids. Like, that's not what she meant. She's like, like I got to get better. And she wants to get better. But it wasn't like, what's wrong with you? It's like, how could you yell at those sweet little, it wasn't that. It was like, I see you and I get it. I have felt that too in my life. Whatever you're going through, Jesus sees you. He gets it. He doesn't want to leave you where you are. Man, he understands. For those of us in the room who were like, we're skeptical about the whole Jesus thing. You don't have to believe me, but I just want you to know, I believe with every fiber of my being that there is a God in the universe who knows your pain. And you're not alone. He sees you. Even if you feel totally unseen. Even, even now as I'm talking, you're like, ah, it's a bunch of baloney. That's okay for you to feel that way. I just want you to know that every fiber of my being tells me he sees you, he loves you, he's for you. This is why in Hebrews, the writer says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In fact, Paul makes it way more personal here in Galatians 4. What does he say? He says, because you are children now, you're not minors, you're not slaves under the guardian of this oppressive law that is impossible to keep. You are children now. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Those two words, Abba, Father, are the Latin, it's the Latin phrase, Abba, Ha, Pater. It's a, it's a term of familial intimacy. It's like saying, Papa. You know, it's not like the juvenile sort of like daddy that babies say. A lot of people will translate it that way. It's much, like, it's much more like Papa. Like I, I've seen grown men and women sitting at the bedside of a father who is in their final moments and I've heard them whisper the words, Papa, I love you. That's this word. What kind of dad is he? Listen, I get it. We've all been shaped by our fathers. Many of us have been shaped by the absence of our fathers, whether literal absence, as in my case, and as in the case of many of us, or like emotional absence, which has been true for many of us. And we often make God in the image of our earthly fathers rather than seeing God as the perfect father. And humans, you and me, myself as well as a father, failing to measure up. What kind of father is he? Jeremiah 31, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Isaiah 66, God says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. There's something really special here. 
our kids, Jenny and I, our kids love us both equally, I think. I'm not sure sometimes, but I think they do. But I will tell you, when they are not well, there's a runny nose or a fever or a cough or a cold, who do you think they want? It is not me. And it's like really hard for Jenny because they're both like, mom. It's like, can you go to dad? They're like, no, mom. And I'm like, yeah, no, they want you. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. And then I'll recite Isaiah 66 as a mother comforts. This is very biblical, what's happening here. So I'm gonna go watch the game and you, you know, care for the... Um, all of us, you know, depending on our relationship with our moms, this, there's some resonance here in this verse, right? Man, when we need comfort, there's something, mother, and God like encompasses all of it. He loves us with an everlasting love. His love for you will never end. He has drawn you with unfailing kindness. His kindness never fails, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, and he will comfort you. That's the sort of father he is. Christmas means that we are God's kids, not as minors, not as slaves. We're his kids meaning we are recipients of his comfort. We are loved with an everlasting love, and we are given an unfailing kindness. And that leads us to verse seven of Galatians four. Paul says, you are no longer a slave but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God, an heir. Under ancient law, um, sons were heirs, right? The firstborn son was the heir. They were destined to inherit what belonged to their father. Now, in contrast, minors who had under a guardian, remember, minors under a guardian had the same rights or lack of rights as slaves. Remember I told you that earlier? Minors not only did not inherit what belonged to their guardian, minors were typically a part of the property that was given to the heir. Think about what's happening here, what Paul is juxtaposing. He's like, you are not a thing that is being given from one to another to another, just passed along, being being churned through the machine of Silicon Valley, like so many of us feel. Paul is saying, in Jesus, you are now children, which means you are heirs, which means that what is God's, your father's, Abba Ha Pater, what is God's is yours. And what is God's is more than stuff or a season. All throughout Advent, what have we been doing? We've been lighting the candles. And what do these candles represent? They represent hope and peace and joy and love. So let me ask you a question. How many of us in the room need some hope in our lives? How many of us need a little bit of peace, wrong relationships, brokenness, being put right? How many of us need joy, not just happiness, but joy that sustains through like the highs and the lows? And how many of us need love? All of us do. I need hope, I need peace, I need joy, I need love. We light these candles representing those realities because our God, Abba Ha Pater, God our Father, is a God of abundant hope, 
peace, joy, and love. And if we are his children, then we are his heirs. That means what is God's is ours. That means that you and I, all those who say yes to Jesus, inherit hope, peace, joy, love. Do you need it? Because if you need it, it can be yours. If you are his child, hope, peace, joy, love is yours. That is your inheritance. That's Christmas. I'm gonna invite Mark and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond together here in a moment. But before we do, um, I don't know if you remember, but back in the summer of 2021, um, I shared a story with you about some dear friends of mine, dear friends of Jenny and I. They were both um, uh, Stan and Noel, our, our dear friends Stan and Noel, married couple. Um, we're about the same age, and we've been dear friends with them for like 20 years. Uh, Stan was my best man. Noel was one of um, Jenny's bridesmaids. I mean, we, dear, dear friends for over two decades now. And I told you in the summer of 2021 that um, when Jenny and I were going through a season, the dark sort of season of infertility, that Stan and Noel were also trying to have children at the time. And there was something really special that happened for us as a couple because they faced infertility right as we were facing it. So we trekked through that really painful season together. And then a thing happened like five years into our infertility journey. Miraculously, Jenny got pregnant with our daughter Harper. And then a few years later, we had our son Simon. But I told you guys in the summer of 2021 that Stan and Noel, that was not their story. And I shared their story with you with permission from them because they still exuded so much joy. That's what I shared with you back in 2021. Stan and Noel, because of infertility, they spent several years in um, exploring adoption and just nothing was working out. And I remember sharing several conversations with them um, in the deep sort of valley of grief and frustration. And then in the fall of 2022, just, you know, a year ago, Stan and Noel got a phone call. And there was a newborn at the hospital. And she needed a family. And then everything changed. I'll show you a photo of their family. Jenny and I talk about this all the time. Um, we see them from time to time still, and we talk about how it, we've never seen them happier. But of course, of course. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Remember, this is the Christmas story. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that what? So that we might receive adoption as children. Adoption stories amongst humans don't always go that way. There isn't always joy. When I think about my friends, Stan and Noel, we were just at their daughter's birthday party at this big park in Morgan Hill like uh, several months ago. 
And it was like, they've always had joy, but there's something in them that's like, oh my gosh. Something has just come alive in them. And it was such a picture to me of how God feels about us. A small microcosm. God doesn't adopt us with hesitation or skepticism. He calls us his kids with open arms. God doesn't adopt us out of pity. He calls us his kids because of love and desire. God doesn't adopt us because it's easy or it's cheap. God calls us his kids at the cost of his son. I don't know what story you are carrying into this room, but God knows your story. So if you've been following Jesus for a long time, I just want you to know Maybe today is a reminder for you of what it means that you are God's child. That he exudes joy, infinite joy, that you are his son, that you are his daughter, and he is able to be your dad. That he sees you and knows your pain and your struggle in ways that you cannot possibly imagine. But I also wanna take a few moments and talk to those of us in the room who maybe have not experienced that reality. So I'm gonna invite um, the team here. We'll just dim the lights, and I just wanna take a moment. And I don't know, I have no idea. I don't know if there's anyone in this room, but my sense is that we would be missing it if I did not at least give an invitation. So here's what I wanna do. I just wanna ask everyone in the room to close their eyes, literally everybody, to create um, a bit of safety and anonymity. And I just, I, again, I don't know if there's anyone here or folks in the theater or watching online, but let me ask this question. If there's anybody in the room today who, and I wanna be clear about this, maybe you're here because a friend invited you or um, a neighbor or a family member sort of forced you to be here, but maybe there is something in you, something in your gut, in your spirit, whether you call it that or not. If there is something in you, I wanna ask you this question. If there is anyone in the room who has never in their life, never of their own choice, said yes to God's invitation to belong in his family. There's anyone who has never said yes to the gift of Jesus, Jesus's life, death, resurrection, that gives you an open door to be a son and a daughter of God. Anyone in the room who is hungry and desperate for hope and for peace and for joy and for love. And today you sensed in yourself, in your heart and in your mind that today you need it and you want it and you wanna say yes to God's invitation through Jesus, his son. If there's anyone who has never said yes before, but you wanna say yes today, would you just raise your hand? Be bold, be courageous, and just raise your hand. Yeah, I see you.
And with eyes closed, I wanna ask a second question. Maybe you've said yes to Jesus, but life has gone astray. You've made decisions that have led you down paths that you didn't really ever want to go, and you find yourself far from God, and today you feel a stirring. You sense a stirring in your heart or in your mind of God through Jesus inviting you to return to him, to recommit your life to him. If that's you today, you want to say yes to Jesus again. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep your hand raised. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for my sister who said yes to you today for the very first time. We rejoice with all of heaven that rejoices that there is a new name in the book of life that hope, peace, joy, and love are hers now and forever. As she receives you, Jesus, into her heart as Lord, Savior, and friend and King, And I pray for the several men and women, brothers and sisters in this room who have strayed and are today making a commitment to say yes to you again, to return to you. I pray that you would begin to draw them near, not just in this moment, in this service, but in the days and weeks, months and years to come, that their lives would be dramatically changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you guys. If you said yes to Jesus today, first, I would love to meet you. So I'll be hanging out here after the service. If you've got the time, please, please come and say hello. I'd love to hear your story and pray with you. And for every single one of you who raised your hand today, we have a table out there that says, I said yes. We've got a team out there. We'd love to give you a little gift. To, it's a little book, devotional book, um, that will help you sort of on your journey of continuing to follow Jesus together. And for the rest of us, you guys, can we just celebrate um, all those who just said yes to Jesus today? Let's stand and sing together.